Good morning to everyone. Glad that you are here today. Thank you for, uh, like Thad said, coming out on this rainy and nasty day. Uh, I want to apologize in advance. I picked up a bit of a cold on Friday. I started going to the chiropractor. I think maybe I got some tainted face paper or something. Uh, so, uh, so if I, I sniffle and, and, uh, and do some things, uh, please bear with me. And Taylor, if you would, if I, if I make a turn like this with a handkerchief, hit the mute for me, buddy. So nobody wants to be a part of that except, uh, no, well, not even me. So, uh, so I beg your indulgence this morning. <clears throat> when I was in either eighth or ninth grade, our English class did a study of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And as part of our study, we were told that we would be watching a movie of the play as well. We were to watch a version directed by this guy named Zeffirelli. And according to our teachers, Zeffirelli's version was really close to the uh, original writings of Shakespeare. There was one hurdle in this, though, is we had to take a note home to our parents to have them sign it so that we could have permission to watch the movie. You see, in Zeffirelli's version, after Romeo and Juliet, excuse me, consummate their secret marriage, Juliet arises from the bed topless. So since this was considered R-rated material, we as 13 through 15-year-olds needed our parents' permission in in order to view it. Most of you in this room are younger than I am and probably have a clearer memory of that age than I do, but what a crazy crazy teacher shows a bunch of hormonal teenagers a topless scene in a movie and expects decorum. Do you remember your thoughts as a 13 to 15-year-old? If you were a girl, you were thinking about boys. And if you were a boy, you were thinking about girls. And everything else was just a vehicle or an opportunity to get in proximity to the the opposite sex. So the movie was rather lengthy, and it took us several days to view the whole film. And I remember the day when we were to see that scene. Our teacher started the class with a stern look and an even sterner admonition that we should act mature and handle ourselves as adults while viewing the scene. Of course, that's warning was useless. There were definitely some whistles, some whoops, and some comments, none of which by me. So today we find ourselves with a passage that speaks very plainly about human behavior. And while I won't be crude, you won't need a note from your parents today, I will certainly speak plainly. So let me pray and let's get, let's get started. Lord, we, uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are found within. We just pray over our time in this passage, which is a little different and a little little challenging today, that you would sort of clear away the the extra, the things that are superfluous and all the things that are in the world that have informed our, our, our view and that we might focus on your word and what it has to say. And Lord, let that be our guide this morning. Play your blessing, blessing on, your time, on our time, and we pray for your spirit to move mightily. In your son's name, amen. We continue in our study of Romans today, and we're steadily making our way through chapter 1. And we come to some verses that, frankly, we'd probably rather just skip over. Or if you were Thad, you would give them to me, work everything out just perfectly. 
not that I would hold on to that. And maybe just keep moving until we get to something a little more palatable. Some of you know my brother's a a preacher, actually now a professor of preaching. And some years ago, he had a sermon entitled, A Passage to Run From. And while his church tradition is a bit different than ours in that he follows the lectionary calendar, instead of going through an entire book, start to finish, inevitably, the calendar will present a passage that is hard or too vivid, and the easier path would be to skip it. But his admonition for his audience, and I take it as my charge today, is that that passage is there for a reason. We know that 2 Timothy tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we can extrapolate then that skipping over things may make us uncomfortable, but it will leave us neither complete nor equipped. So let's get into the word today. So we're in Romans. I'm going to start in uh, chapter, we're in verse, I'm sorry. If you knew how much medicine I had in my head, you would excuse that. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, the words are up there. Uh, If you are new or don't have a Bible, there should be uh, something close to you underneath the the seat rack, either above or behind you, and uh, we'll get started. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's let that settle for just a minute. So I'm going to need your help today, please. I'm going to focus on two areas. So we're going to talk about what the Bible says. But we're also going to talk about what I believe based on the Bible, personal experience, and how I think we should apply that in our lives today. So I will preface my biblical points with this phrase, this is what the Bible says. And just so that I know that you're all following along, if you would please repeat that back to me. Likewise, when I'm making a point from my own personal viewpoint, I'm going to say, this is what David thinks. And if you would in kind, repeat that back to me. That way, we have everything straight. That what the Bible said is to be taken as God's inerrant word. And that my personal thoughts are that of a sinful man with a mind that cannot fully comprehend all that God means for me to take away for the scriptures and apply to my life. All right, so let's give this a try. Ready, everybody? This is what the Bible says. That's pretty good. I thought I was going to have to turn this church around. This is what David thinks. All right, so we're on, we're on all on the same page. So the first phrase that we have to deal with is this phrase that I know I don't use on a regular basis, if ever, 
Therefore, God gave them up. The first word we encounter here is therefore. So we know that Paul is continuing his thought all the way back from verse 8. We see the word for or therefore in verses 9, 11, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 24, and 26. So even though the topic for today is different from last week and the week before, the overall theme is still the same. It's one train of thought with many points. The God gave them up phrase simply means that God gives people free choice. Remember that free choice was given as far back as Adam and Eve. So what Paul is expressing here is that God and his ways are the better choice. However, when people choose to go their own way and ignore God, he does not do anything supernatural to stop them. They, we, are free to choose godly things or worldly things. We see here that they have clearly chosen worldly things. So the pattern goes like this. With their minds, they have made a decision to pursue the things of the world. Their hearts have followed, meaning that now there is a a desire, a longing. And once the heart is set on it, the body follows. That's what the Bible says. I thought, I'm I'll turn this church around. A few months ago uh, at work, we were gathered around talking before we got busy, and somehow a female name came up, and woman, I, one of my cooks says, hey, that sounds like the name of my first girlfriend. Man, that was something that never should have happened. I knew dating her was wrong. My parents told me she was wrong, but I really, I really have thought I had some feelings for her, so we dated we ended up getting pretty heavy. We ended up doing some things that we didn't, shouldn't have done. And it didn't end well. But I'm thankful now that it ended. This is the same pattern that Paul points out in verse 24. My cook made a decision contrary to what he knew was right. And his parents, the authority in his life, that knew best for him. And when he was able to make that decision, his heart followed. And he was all in. And then his body followed. But that's what David thinks. In verse 25, we see a replay of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Paul says that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. Remember in the Garden, God laid out the truth. But Satan came by with his slick lie and tricked Adam and Eve into believing it. God had given them everything, yet they chose to worship the creation being themselves rather than God, the creator. So don't think of original sin as as anything else. Adam and Eve wanted something for themselves. They put themselves ahead of God's command for them. They made idols of themselves thinking that they could be equal to God and then they wouldn't need him. And they and all of humanity forward paid the price. By choosing things over God, they, like us, and like those who Paul is speaking about here, 
separated themselves from God. In Adam's and Adam and Eve's case, God threw them out of the Garden of Eden and stationed a couple angels with flaming swords there so they couldn't get back in. In our case today, when we worship or idolize something other than God the Father, we don't remove ourselves from the garden, but from a right and close relationship with him. We have exchanged great for good. Are there things in this world that are good? Many, many things. They're just that. They're just good. What we have through Christ's sacrifice is a relationship with God the Father that is the greatest thing. But by focusing on things, idolizing anything other than God, we have exchanged great for good, and good doesn't last. It does not have eternal benefit. So let's pop back in on verse 26 and verse 27 and review just a little bit here. Romans 1, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let me point this out first. I, I don't know why Paul chose to address this issue on its own. Maybe because the Roman society was a very carnal society. A lot of forms of entertainment for them were very debased. The Romans have come up with uh, Bacchus, god of sex and wine. It's where we get our word Bacchnalian. Bacchnalian is a description for a party or an event where pretty much anything goes. Something the Romans were, were known for. So it doesn't seem too far out of reason to believe that same-sex relations were known in a common activity. And I've just chosen to stop here in the text because to go any further would really take too much time. But however, not to steal next week's thunder, only two verses from here are 20 things that Paul points out that are contrary to God's will as well. So while Paul gives homosexuality a singular focus here, there is a whole lot of ungood stuff right around the corner. Here's what we're not going to do today. We're not going to do a long, drawn-out Bible study about whether homosexuality is right or wrong and biblical and not biblical. Because Paul puts it rather plainly here. These kinds of relations are not natural. They are contrary to creation and therefore the creator. And Paul says that people who participate in these actions are in error and that there is penalty for that error. And he follows that up in his letter to the church in Corinth with a very similar exhortation. This is what the Bible says. Don't fall asleep on me. The question then is what do we do with this? We live in a day 
and time when according to the world there is no right and no wrong, right? We define everything for ourselves. And moreover, if anyone dares denounce anything as wrong, they're publicly chastised. They're called out as a haterade. You drink the haterade, man. Unloving, not accepting, mean, cruel, unloving. Is anybody uh, familiar with this guy, Chris Pratt? I'm going to talk with my mom. I think maybe after, after the service I'm going to talk with her. I think maybe I have a twin brother that I didn't know about. Maybe we were separated at some point. <laughs> Well played, sir. So is anyone up to speed on the controversy that Chris Pratt is involved in right now? Sometime around the beginning of this month, he went on the Stephen Colbert show and did an interview. And several times during the interview, he mentions his church. After his interview is aired, a blogger named Ellen Page, who I do not know, does what uh, other people seem to do these days. She takes to social media, in this case Twitter, and she calls him out and she asserts that his church, called Zoe Church, is an anti-LGTBQ plus church. And Pratt's response with this, I am a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want, free from judgment of their fellow man. Oh, Chris Pratt. Almost. How are we supposed to live out what we just read in the Bible and stand firm and show Christ's love to the world at the same time? A world that is presently at war with anyone with a different opinion than anything I can tell you what some churches are doing. If you've done any church searching lately, you may have seen something in their listing. It'll say such and such a church. And it'll say an O, or it may say O-N-A. The most common denominations are the United Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ. And the O in that description stands for open. And here's why I'm in agreement with those churches. Those churches should be open. We should be an open church. We should be open to homosexuals, open to lusters open to thieves, open to liars, open to adulterers, anyone, we should be open to anyone dealing with any sin. The A stands for accepting. Here is where I am in disagreement with the church who claims the A, accepting. Because what they don't mean to say that it's okay if you come in and hang out with us. What they do mean is that you don't have to recognize your behavior as sin, repent of it, and fight like crazy not to continue to live in sin. The church, we the people that are the church, have gathered together here and places all over, gathered together to fight sin. And we all deal with different sin issues. Again, if you look ahead to verses 29 and 30, you may find a few that you can claim. I know that in the past I have some of these, and I have some of them now. But we shouldn't be content with these, life, with these issues in our life. We should be fighting these things with all the tools that are available to us. Super appreciative for what Kayla said this morning because one of those tools that she mentioned is reading God's word. And again, she mentions being in prayer. Being in prayer for the Holy Spirit to aid us in fighting sin. 
and the community of believers that is either here at this church or around us to hold us accountable in our lives. We shouldn't accept our own sin, any sin. We should constantly be fighting it and certainly not advertising that it's acceptable. The late pastor, Billy Graham, has a grandson named Tulian Trevision. And Tulian was a minister at a large church in Florida until a couple years ago when he admitted to having an affair. Unfortunately, a minister having an affair isn't always such a big news story, but given who his grandfather was, it most certainly was at the time. And in the time since he's uh, fallen out, he's been faithful to tweet his thoughts as he thinks about his sin in light of God's grace and God's mercy. And just a couple of days ago, he tweeted this. Churches that will fry, excuse me, let me start again. Churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable, but rather basements of grace where broken sinners are embraced and forgiven, places where sin doesn't shock and grace still amazes. Notice, though, what Tullian does not say. He does not say that broken sinners should be left alone in their sin. He doesn't say that we, the church, should just let sinners continue on their course. No. We are to embrace sinners, each other, and to lead them to the cross because that is where and how forgiveness is possible. How can I be shocked at someone else's sin when I have my own sin to fight and deal with? Remember Thad's long jump illustration from last week? If someone is dealing with homosexuality and I'm dealing with lying, we could argue all day long about whose truth is, whose sin is more egregious. But the truth is, as we learned last week, that neither of us are good enough to earn our own salvation. Neither of us can make that jump from the beach all the way to the outer banks. I can't make it. You can't make it. Only through Jesus is it possible. And in order to receive his grace and favor, we must daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, die to our sinful self and pray for forgiveness and by his power seek to live a life that reflects that of Christ. What we should all constantly be amazed by is knowing that we all fall short. We'll never make that jump. God's grace is extended to us all, all of us sinners. This past week in our Connect group, we tried to tackle verse 20 up ahead. We tried and tried to come up with something about the heart and mind of God when it comes to someone that has never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? And there were some interesting points made, and we really came to the conclusion that we couldn't say for sure. There were definitely some David thinks moments, but I'm not sure I really convinced anyone else. One question that is often on people's minds when we talk about homosexuality is, are people born gay? And here's where we're definitely going to pass into, this is what David thinks. Thank you. In my work as a chef, I, 
I have had the opportunity to work with a huge cross-section of people. The late Chef Anthony Bourdain calls cooks crusty pirates, and pirates come from all walks of life. When I worked at a business club about 15 years ago, I worked with a cook named John. And kitchens are not especially large workplaces, so you get to know your coworkers pretty quickly. John learned pretty quickly that I was a Christian, I'm sorry, a Christian, and I learned pretty quickly that John was gay. And neither of us were ashamed about it. And I do my best to treat people I work with as professionals, and if they are open enough to entrust you with anything personal, then it's to be taken as a gift and appreciated. So John and I got to where we could speak pretty freely. He would ask questions about my beliefs, and he was generous enough to open up about his life. And one day this question did come up. And I asked John, do you think that you were born gay? And John answered me in a way that still has me thinking 15 years later. just as I'll be thinking for the rest of my life about the fate of those who have never heard the gospel. John said this, I know I've told you a good bit about my life, but what I can never fully tell you is how hard it is to be gay in this society. The looks, the comments, the name-calling, and the ridicule that I've had to adore, that I'm still enduring. Why? Why would I have chosen this lifestyle? It would have been easier to be straight. And I'll be honest with you, I I have truly wrestled with his response since then. Do I know the answer? No, I don't. But like you've heard me say before, I'm sure there's a discussion group in heaven and we can sit around and talk about this and then we'll know for sure. But it got me thinking about the things that everybody struggles with. Why are some people overtaken by things? Yet others, it's no big deal. I used to be a cigarette smoker. I was a good cigarette smoker. I would smoke a pack and a half a day. But I had a friend who also smokes, and a pack of cigarettes would last him all week. I like to partake in an adult beverage from time to time, but I honestly may go a week's month without having one why is it then that there are people who just at the thought of an alcoholic drink can lead them to start drinking and seemingly never stop how about pastor tulian grandson of billy graham what a great example to look up to and surely he was brought up to know that adultery was wrong Imagine in in Billy Graham's life, all the traveling, all the crusades, never an indiscretion. Tulian barely makes it to 40, and he's had two affairs. Why? I don't think that this side of heaven will have an answer for that. What we can know is that no matter what, is that we're led to or tempted by, we have to first make it our, a decision in our heads to follow that temptation. And once we've indulged, we fall into it with our hearts 
and love the things that are not good for us, whether it be habits or sins. And before we know it, we've given our whole selves over to it, seemingly trapped and mired in a destructive pattern. We have accepted the good things of this world instead of the great things of God. We know in our heads that worldly things are immediately enjoyable. An affair is fun and fulfilling at the time. Living a homosexual lifestyle is enjoyable in this world. And we'll see next week when we dive into that list of 20 things that Paul has that they serve us in the moment when we do them. But in the light of eternity, they are damning unless we repent and ask for forgiveness and fight like crazy against them and pray for victory over them. If the band would go ahead and come up, we'll talk about how we'll wage war on this sin, on any sin. How do we pass over the good things so that we can have the great things of God? How do we ignore the lie so that we can live in the truth? It's all about focus. It's where we have our attention. If we are constantly involved and interested in the things of this world, that is what will have our minds, then our hearts, and ultimately our bodies. In Colossians 3.2, Paul admonishes us to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. The more we look at Christ, the more the earthly things will be pushed out of our lives. We're going to close today with the chorus of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the words of this chorus sum it up perfectly. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we focus on Jesus, when we look at him, we get what is wonderful, what is great. And the things of this world, the things that are only good and only temporary will not seem so important anymore. I would challenge you I challenge me to make this song a prayer. Make it a plea to the Holy Spirit that when we are faced with choices in our life, to choose the great and let the good pass. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit as we study that we may think and reason. And we're thankful, Lord, for community that as we gather in our connect groups this week, as we talk with other believers at work, we talk with our friends and text and on the phone, that we may continue to dive deeper into what our passages bring for us today, how we put that down in our lives, how we make that commonplace for us. Lord, we, we beg you, we entreat you, and we plead with you. Be with us this week as we look at things daily, minute by minute that are good. And Lord, help us pass them over for the things that are great, the things of you. Lord, we love you. And in your son's name, amen.